I've, um, I've never been to this service. I uh, have th- three young children. So nights, uh, they're usually off limits at this point. So it's good to be here because my family's away. They've all gone up to Lightning Ridge to visit family. And I, and I told them that, um, A, I didn't want to go. And <laughs> that was my words. And B, uh, I've got to work, so I can't go, even if I wanted to, which I don't. So, uh, so I'm here. I get to come here and, and not worry about uh, getting home at a reasonable hour, which is great because you start really late. So, uh, like, as in, you st- it starts at six. So, um, <laughs> that's fine. I've been, I, church I used to go to did that all the time. So, uh, you know, you start late and whatever. Because you like each other, so you start late. It's all good. Um, what even is it really? Uh, so, I, uh, Andy asked me to come and speak at the youth service and I thought, great, and it's good to be here and I feel both young and old all at the same time and um, I asked Andy, I said, what, what do you reckon I should talk about? And Andy said, why don't you just tell a bit about your uh, story? So that's all I'm going to do tonight. I'm just going to tell you a bit about me. You don't know me from a bar of soap, so hopefully you'll know me slightly better than a bar of soap. Um, by the time we uh, finish here tonight. Uh, like, clearly a white, a white Jesus. So this is, a, this is a running theological debate about whether or not I look like Jesus. Um, and that's fine. Like, I do totally look like Jesus in certain pictures. I just want to make it clear that if you worship that white Jesus, you're worshipping an idol. <laughs> okay. Jesus wasn't no white person. So, um, anyway, all of that to say hi. <laughs> My name's Matt. It's good to be here. Uh, thank, thanks, everyone. So, let me get in. I'm going to start with a, uh, all I've got basically is some images, and hopefully this thing works. Yeah, okay. That's, that's me um, looking, di- yeah, looking different. I know, you never see me in a blazer uh, very often. <laughs> and, uh, but that was me on the 21st of May in 2014, getting arrested. Um, and I want to start there because I'm going to answer the question, how did I, how did I end up there? Uh, so I'm going to go back in time for a bit. We'll come back to this, but that's my question. How, how, how did I end up there getting arrested while well, carrying my drink bottle? If you look, carrying my drink bottle, it's all good. Um, and kind of with a dumb smile on my face, yeah. Which is usually my face. So, uh, go back to the start of my life. I grew up um, in a, what I'll call a nominally Christian family. Here's, um, here's me when I'm really little. It's hard to imagine that that's me. <laughs> Uh, That's white blonde hair, uh, which I don't have anymore. Uh, (laughs) But I I grew up in uh, a a mostly, well, sometimes lovely, uh, nominally Christian family. Nominally meaning they, our family said, oh, you know, we're Catholic, but we, you know, we went to church maybe once a year. Um, Had no active faith that wasn't anything that we lived out. I did go to a Catholic school, but that was sort of it. And it was um, my early years, I remember being uh, reasonably happy, um, but I, I remember 
at the age of about six or seven, I was in um, year one, and my parents started to fight a lot. And what became what was fighting eventually became domestic violence in our family. So, um, and not just it was it was physical um, against my mother by my father, but it was also emotional. And I lived with um, emotional domestic violence for many years, even after my parents divorced and I was separated at least when I was thirteen. Uh, there was, my father is a fairly manipulative person and so there was a lot of domestic violence in our family. And um, one of the things that that caused for me going into my teenage years was fairly serious depression. When I was 14, I had my first uh, uh, episode of depression. At the time, I didn't know what it is. This is back when I was 14, so that's sort of 1999 or thereabouts. And I, uh, we talk a lot about mental health nowadays, a lot about depression and anxiety. No one talked about it back then. Uh, and so I can remember being 14 and feeling like I wanted to kill myself. And there was sort of no way to work through that except to tell friends and them not really understand that. Um, but the, re- the result was that I lived in this situation, domestic violence. I had fairly serious depression. And I, I, think, I think I was in trouble and I needed help. And in my life, I'd always believed in God. Like, I don't remember a time where I didn't believe that God existed. I'd grown up, you know, like I said, nominally Catholic, so I just took for granted that God existed. But when I was 14, I went to a youth group in Sydney with friends and... Uh, made a decision to, to follow Jesus. So I became a Christian at the age of 14. And in a, in a sense, that was obviously, obviously really good in, in one way. In another way, there were some negatives that went along with that as well. The people who um, sort of mentored me early on, most of them were what I can only describe as uh, Christian fundamentalists. Does anyone know what I mean by that? Um, so what I mean by a Christian fundamentalist is the kind of like, and they're actually quite like American fundamentalists if some of you know what I mean by that. Um, they're the kind of people who believe that Jesus is coming back any day and um, that God was really kind of angry about kind of everything. So there was a really angry kind of way of thinking about God and, and that kind of thing. They believed God was quite violent, that God was going to come back and just sort of basically destroy everything. Um, they took the Bible like extremely literally, not like literally in a, in a good kind of way, like literally in a bad kind of way. Um, and it led to them being uh, pretty... Uh, people who like like to make a point of excluding others. Let me put it that way. And so I grew up in that for probably the first five years that I was a Christian. I believed that God, as I said, was angry and violent. And here's the thing. You become like the thing that you worship. So if you worship a God who is angry and violent, you become angry. You become potentially violent. Um, these people that mentored me early on, that they believed that God didn't really care about the material world at all, just 
God only cared about saving, uh, saving our souls, that kind of thing. So whatever was going on in your life, in the material world, it wasn't really that important. What really mattered was your soul. So the result of that was I worshipped an angry God and I became an angry person. Christianity is meant to set you free. I, for the first few years, I did not find that. This faith of ours can be used to harm. I also just didn't care about people's well-being. I didn't care about the material world. I cared about, like I said that I didn't anyway. I sort of only cared about people's souls, about that kind of thing. So for me it was like, oh, just evangelise people, tell them the truth and the truth according to us at the time was, you know, yeah, God's going to send you to hell unless you like let him in. Um, and that was kind of the message. I didn't think that God had any concern for the pain that was going on in our world. And there's a lot of pain in our world. Um, so things like poverty, mass extinction of all sorts of creatures, current environmental collapse, the suffering of refugees, which was going on at this time. This is the early 2000s by this point. If some of the uh, more mature folks might remember Tampa, those kinds of incidences. Um, they were all happening. And I just didn't care because I'd been taught not to care. When I finished school, despite all of this, I felt a strong call to ministry. I didn't know what kind of ministry. I assumed it was um, church-based ministry. So I went to theological college, started my degree. And um, when you start a degree, the thing is you have to read a lot of books and stuff. And uh, so I did. I read a lot of books about theology and uh, I've always sort of been a bit um, uh, in my head, uh, you know, intellectually inclined. So I read read a lot when I started college, or when I went to college. And that had the effect for me of doing that thing that Christianity, I think, is meant to do. Reading books set me free. I know that sounds strange because... For a lot of people, reading books is not that. Um, but reading books, reading books set me free because I had to read people who were saying very different things about God than what I was hearing uh, with the people who were mentoring me. And um, I began to realise that God was much bigger than I had previously imagined. Not just bigger, but better, but more beautiful. And God didn't make distinctions between body and soul like I did. God didn't feel the need to choose between our spiritual and our material well-being. I learned that God wasn't trying to destroy the world, wasn't going to come and just blow everything up, but that God was seeking to restore the world, to set things right. That was the process I went through. It was painful. Any sort of change like that is, can be really painful because you've got to confront all your old ideas and replace them with new ones. <laughs> but I learned uh, that, that God, is, uh, God is a God of reconciliation and is reconciling all things in this world. In my early 20s sometime, I went to... Uh, uh, I went to Cambodia 
on a what I call what we call an exposure trip. It wasn't a mission trip. We weren't going to do stuff. We were just going to meet people and learn and listen and shut up and hear what they had to say. And um, I saw uh, extreme poverty. Not 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 just ju- just is the wrong word. Not poverty like we see in Australia, and that's that's awful enough, right? I'm talking about extreme poverty, people who earn maybe one to two dollars a day, US, who uh, haven't got enough to eat for their families, that kind of poverty. Uh, In places like this, um, so this is around uh, Phnom Penh, the capital, this is sort of the outskirts of the city. Um, This is a village about uh, two hours away from Phnom Penh. Um, one of the things, I, there were some beautiful things that I saw. So this is a project by an organisation that I'd actually work for later. It was a, uh, called Tier Australia and they work with poor communities around the world. So I, I started working for them in my mid-twenties. But, so I saw some beautiful stuff where this is a well that they set up. But I, you know, saw some stuff that wasn't so awesome. And um, so... It was, a, it was a trip that um, transformed me significantly. I began to understand not only what poverty was like for people, but I began to understand how my life is entangled with their life. That it's not just a separate thing. I can't look at this and go, it's overseas, it's got nothing to do with me. Actually, my life, because I purchase products made by often people just like people who live in these kinds of places... And the products I buy are made in such a way as to exploit them. My life actually is tied to their life. I remember this village, this is in a place called Preveng. Uh, again, a couple of hours out of Phnom Penh. And uh, we went to this farm. This, uh, that's, that's a farm. It doesn't look like it much. Um, but they grow things like coconuts. You can see some coconut trees there. Uh, and rice, that kind of thing. And I remember having this profound experience, like it it was one of those things that just changes you immediately. We were speaking to people who lived in this village and I said to them, just tell me about your life, tell me what it's like here. And I don't know what I expected them to say, but what they started to talk about was the fact that, uh, that the monsoon was changing. Does anyone know what the monsoon is? Anybody? So the monsoon is like the annual rain. And they, they said, you know, 20 years ago we could predict to the day when it would start and to the day when it would finish. We knew. Uh, every year it was the same. And temperatures were, you know, every year a little bit different, but within a, they were, they were pretty well the same. But over the last 20 years we've noticed it's different. We've noticed that the monsoon starts later and it finishes earlier and when it's happening, it uh, is more erratic and it does damage to our farms. Now, when, I, when they told me this story, in my mind, uh, the words climate change came to mind. But uh, for them, they'd never heard of that. Climate change wasn't a thing for them. They didn't, all they knew was that the weather's changing and it's harder to farm. And they showed me their farm and there's nothing there. Dad had a bad year. 
this trip was significant for me and, and my wife. We weren't married, actually. Uh, we weren't even together, but we were both on this trip. Uh, so if you're keen, just go on one of them trips. But um, uh, that, that is not real advice. So I just want to put a footnote under that. Uh, but maybe it is. Uh, so I... I um, what I became convicted about being on this trip was that Christians had to be part of some kind of response to these kinds of issues. That if Christians believe, as I had come to believe, that God is restoring the world, not trying to destroy it, then we have to be the ones who get involved in these kinds of issues. We have to participate in the way that God is restoring the world. We have to get involved. Another part of my life around this time was my journey towards peace. Uh, as I said, I'd, I had believed that God was actually quite uh, violent and that God would come and you know, smite those who didn't believe or whatever. I don't know, something dumb. And, um, but I began to see in my studies and just in my life through meeting people that in the scriptures and even in life, that the God that is revealed in Jesus is a God of peace, is a God of non-violence. That was a huge turnaround from where I'd been. I began to understand that as Christians we are called, uh, as Jesus talks about, to be peacemakers, to be people who seek peace. And I became interested in uh, non-violence, and in learning to be non-violent, to be a peacemaker. Uh, and that's become to be something that's actually defined, I think, what I have sought to do with my life, is to try to be a peacemaker. Um, and it was around this time that I married Ashley. And uh, there she is. And um, <laughs> we look really different to that. Well, I, I look really different to that. Eh? Um, so... When we got married, we had been on this journey together in the lead up to our, to our marriage and, and after our marriage. And we made a very conscious decision that we didn't want our marriage to be just about us. That the purpose of a, a good marriage is that it blesses the community around you. And we wanted our marriage to be that. We made a very conscious decision that in our life and in our marriage, we would seek to live... Uh, we would seek to live out the radical faith that we were learning to embody. We wanted our marriage to be about that, the very centre of what we did. And so we wanted to, be, uh, to seek to be, um, as, as a married couple, a part of God's restorative project for the whole world. We, we wanted to find ways to combat poverty in the way that we live. We wanted to seek to live sustainably in God's creation and not treat it like rubbish. And we wanted to seek to embody peace in our lives. We wanted to try to um, be a presence of, of peace. Not a, a kind of um, wussy peace that just sort of tries to stay out of everything. Because that's not peace really. Like if conflict's happening and you just go, well I don't want anything to do with it, that ain't peace. Peace is getting in the midst of it and trying to find ways to end. Uh, yeah, yeah. Being a peacemaker means you need to make peace, funnily enough. Uh, you need to get into conflict and find ways to 
uh, end to, to end the, those cycles of violence that we have in our where, where you know one person does something bad to someone, then they retaliate and then they retaliate. We need to end those cycles, and we need to be in the midst seeking peace. So all of this uh, is what kind of uh, led. Uh, well, this is a separate photo, but my to my getting arrested. So let me tell you that story. In 2014. Well, actually, the year before, but anyway, um, around sort of 2012, 2013, I should say, some of you would know that the situation with refugees started to get quite bad. Um, Australia started to become a country where, again, we've done this in the past and we started to do it again. We started to detain refugees indefinitely. If you don't know what that means, it's like you go to prison and they don't tell you how long you're going to be there. They just tell you that, You'll be there as long as you'll be there. And we basically said to refugees, you're going to stay here. You haven't done anything wrong, but you're going to remain in detention for who knows how long. Imagine what that does to you psychologically. But that's what we did to people who were just trying to seek safety, just trying to flee violence. We started to, Australia um, engaged in some cases of what's called, uh, in technical speak, refoulement. Refoulement means that we take people who have fled violence and they've tried to come to Australia and we take them and we give them back to the country that they've fled from. Some of those people were murdered after they were given back. Some were tortured. Places like Afghanistan, uh, this, we have documented cases where people were murdered after they were sent back, the Taliban or whoever murdered them. Um, and we started to, uh, Australia restarted something called uh, temporary protection visas, um, which is basically where we say to people, yeah, we'll give you protection in Australia, but only for three years and then you've got to go back. So like, uh, in three years, some of those places haven't gotten much or, much or even any better and we want to send them back. This is the kind of thing that Australia did. But it wasn't just that, it was the, the fact that in detention, children were being sexually abused by guards, um, women were being sexually abused by guards, there was all kinds of self-harm attempts, people were trying to commit suicide. Some people set themselves on fire. There's a story that I know of a young girl who, she was, uh, her father was brought to Darwin for medical attention and then they were going to be sent back to Nauru. She tried to kill herself, she was five. Right? These are things that happened on our watch. And I was seeing this stuff happen and I thought, if I'm really serious about following Jesus into the way of peace and justice and love, surely, surely we have to do something. I'd been learning about nonviolence as a form of creative action. So I want to bring in the scripture now, um, except I don't have a Bible. So that's a problem. Is that a Bible? Beautiful. I figured there'd be one here, so. Can I get a volunteer who's maybe, is, is there someone who is bigger than I am? Like, bigger than I am. It's all right, I'll take it easy on you. <laughs> yeah, please, yes. Okay, there's a text in Matthew 5. It says this. Ladies and gentlemen. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, it's all good. I just, 
I just like having you next to me. But um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's good. I like it. I like it. Um, so there's a text in Matthew five. This is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, as it's called, and he says this: "You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth." Which means, what do you think? If somebody does wrong to you, you do the same amount of wrong back to them. Yeah. So, you know, you do proportionate retaliation to them. Make sure you don't take two eyes if they take one eye. Okay? You've heard it said that, right? But I tell you, Jesus says, do not resist the evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. What does that normally mean when people say, oh, you turn the other cheek? What does that normally mean? Yeah, yeah, just sort of cop it, just like, just accept being slapped and, and turn the other one and, you know, don't make a big deal about it or something like that, right? Okay, let's imagine a scenario. <laughs> no, you're going to hit me, it's fine, it's fine. That's all good. Okay, so if James um, is going to strike me on the right cheek, which is my right cheek? Your right cheek. Yeah. Okay, and how, how are you going to hit me on here? Okay, okay, so you're not used to it, but imagine you live at the time of Jesus, if you know anything about sort of the ancient uh, Israel in the first century, why would James not use his left hand to hit me? Yeah, that is the reason why. You wipe your bum with your left hand. It's unclean, it's an unclean hand, you don't use it, right? Okay, so... That being the case, you can't use your left hand. How, how are you going to hit me on my right cheek? Okay, so you backhand me. So you, you do that. What does that usually symbolise, just backhanding someone? Like as if, I say that as if you've got like heaps of experience. Um, yeah. You idiot, yeah. Yeah, okay, but what kind of aggression? Like, so what? Derogatory, yeah. Dismissive. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Like if, if you were going to physically, uh, is, I say this like a hypothetical, like, it's, uh, like if you were to physically assault someone who was unequal to you, you would probably punch them. But, but if you backhand them, the symbol is, you're not worth my time. Like I am superior to you, you are inferior. Keep going back to uh, the first century. What kind of relationships might that represent in the first century? Slaves? Romans and Jewish uh, you know, pe- people, yeah? Kids and wives. Potentially children, wives potentially with abusive husbands. Yeah, all of these kinds of things. Okay, so Jesus says, somebody strikes you on the right hand, they do that, what do you do? What does he say in the text? Does anyone know? You turn the other cheek also. Okay, so you slap me there and I go, all right, well... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, you can't use this hand. Yeah, yeah, so what are you going to do? Yeah. Okay, so I open myself up to being punched. In a way, in a way, you kind of go, "Oh man, that is not a good result." But, but why? What am I symbolising? What, what am I forcing to happen? I'm, I'm forcing James to have to actually treat me as some kind of equal. Thanks, James. Oh, actually, no, I got, no, James, I got one more. I got one more. <laughs> this is... Okay. Up for it, <laughs> so, yeah. so, 
So, um, <laughs> we, we, in, in um, non the non-violence training that I run, we talk about the different responses to people's violence. And so one response is to, you, you know, heard of fight and flight? Yeah. People heard of that? What does that mean? You run away or you, or you fight. So, can you put your hands up with that for me? I need you to push against. Okay, so if I am probably not going to win this fight. <laughs> if, you want to if I fight back. <laughs> okay, okay. What I want to suggest Jesus is doing in this text <clears throat> is calling us to transform the conflict. So what's the next text? Does anyone remember what the next part of this text is? What is the example that's given? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it says, if somebody sues you for your inner clothes... Give them also your, your cloak. Um, give them the outer clothes, okay? So let's think about this for a sec, because we just sort of pass these over and go, yeah, okay, whatever. Like, give them extra when they sue you. Um, right, good advice, Jesus. <laughs> but it, let's imagine this for a second in the context of Jesus' world. Jesus says, when somebody sues you for your clothes, why is somebody suing you for your clothes? Okay, so you have nothing else to get. Who are you then? You're poor, you're nobody. All you have to give, the only thing worth suing you for, is your clothes. And I'm not talking about your 700 buck Nikes, right? I'm talking about just, you're nothing, you know, yeah. You're just, your clothes that you've worn that aren't like clean, and they're suing you for those. Now, the Old Testament taught that if somebody sues you for your clothes, they have to give it back at the end of the day so you don't freeze, right? But this person's just going to take it. And Jesus says what? Give them also your... your what it, okay, so imagine this, right? You're in the court and they sue you and uh, somebody comes and enforces what's the, the, the ruling and they say, give us, give us the inner stuff. And you go, all right, and you've got the cloak off, and you take the cloak off and you give them the clothes and... And you go, well, here, take the cloak as well. What are you at that moment? You are naked. You're standing in court, naked, going, yeah, just good, take it. What have you done in that moment? You've made yourself vulnerable. In, remember in the story of Noah, for those who remember it, um, the 
Ham, the son, great name, um, sees, he, he looks at his father naked. He sees his father naked. Who is shamed at that point? Is Noah shamed for being looked at naked? No, Ham is the one who's, who's shamed for looking at him naked. So that's an interesting dynamic. But even more than that, what else have you done? You, uh, the way I want to put it is that you have... <laughs> they've, they've, let, let me put this in, in, in youth speak, right? Because I'm, I'm super cool. <laughs> they've pantsed you, right? But in, in, by, by you giving them all the clothes, you've pantsed the whole system. Because you've said... I literally have nothing and this rich person has sued... Because the only people who um, can afford to sue you, even in the ancient world, are rich people. They've taken my clothes, the only thing that I have, even though they have more than they need. So I'm going to give them everything to unveil just how unjust this whole situation is. I'm going to reveal it for what it is, an injustice. That this is ridiculous. And so they pants you and you pants the system. And then finally, this is getting off track. I don't know what's going to do. And then um, the last one, what's the last part of what Jesus talks about here? Or the the second last part, but it's the last part I'll deal with. What's the last, the next bit? Go the second mile. So, um, you know, if somebody asks you to go a mile, go the second mile. What does that usually mean in church land? Do more than you've been asked. If, you, if your youth pastor lends you his car, uh, wash it before you give it back, you know. Which is good advice, by the way. Um, <laughs> but that's not what the text means. So don't, yeah, good. Just lend him the car and ask him to wash it. That's fine. No, that's not what it meant. See, in the ancient world, there was a, there was a, a rule or a law where a Roman soldier could conscript a local person, to carry their sort of pack, their supplies, for 1,000 steps. A milia in Greek, a mile translated. So they can make you carry uh, their their stuff for 1,000. Now, how do you think local people felt about this? I bet they loved it. Yeah, yeah. You're just, you're in the street in Jerusalem or whatever, and some Roman soldier who's occupying your land, who's uh, oppressing your people, says, Oi, come here. So put this on, let's go. And so you get to a thousand steps or approximately there and he gets to the end and the Roman soldier says, all right, give it back. And you say, no, yeah, let's keep going. And he knows that he can get in trouble for making you go further because the Romans, they oppress you but they don't oppress you too much to make you revolt, right? They just want to get you on the edge. And uh, so he knows that he can get in trouble for making you go further. So what's happened? I, I, one at a time. <laughs> yeah, so that... You're in control. Panting the system. You imagine, this is, this is actually... We, we fail to recognise this because it's not our sort of... It's not our culture. But this is actually funny. You get this Roman soldier who makes you go a thousand steps. You get to a thousand, you get to a marker or something and he goes, all right, give it back. And you go, no, let's keep going. And you have this comical situation where the Roman soldier is saying to the Jewish peasant, can you please give him my stuff back? (laughs) 
what Jesus is doing is teaching us, these aren't sort of things, oh, you have to do this. This is saying these are ways for you not to resist evil with evil. Because Jesus resisted evil all the time, right? It's not that, the text in English says, do not resist evil, but the word in Greek actually says, do not violently resist evil. And what Jesus teaches us to do is to confront evil without using violence. That's what nonviolence is all about. Nonviolence is not about doing nothing. When I say to people, I, I, I practice nonviolence, they go, oh, so, so what do you do if someone's being evil? Like, what do you do? Nothing? I go, That's, no. I just respond without violence. Or try to. Because I'm a violent son of a... Anyway, um, that's a different story. Because we all are, right? But, but in seeking to be nonviolent, I seek to find peaceful, nonviolent ways to deal. And so, what are we doing here? This is a group of us who went into then Immigration Minister, now Prime Minister Scott Morrison's office in Cronulla. And we said to the staff in his office, because he's never there, of course, um, we think that at the time, the 1,138 children who are being detained on Nauru and in this country, unjustly, unfairly, having done nothing wrong, and they're being oftentimes abused, they're suffering post-traumatic stress, suffering all sorts of mental health issues. We think that is just so incredibly unjust, particularly since the person who is controlling these policies at the time is a person who is the most recognised Christian in Parliament. So, we are a calling on the Immigration Minister, now Prime Minister, but then Immigration Minister, to uh, publicly announce that they're going to release all children and their families. We want to see a public statement. And we're going to sit in your office and we're going to pray and we're not going to leave until we, until we get that commitment. And so we did. We sat there for hours and we prayed. We sang. And um, eventually the police came <laughs> and, and removed us. And five of that group of eight were arrested and... Um, Without knowing it, we started a national movement because that was one action which we thought would just be one action. By the end of 2014, there'd been 22 around the country. Uh, At this point, as in five years later, over 300 Christian leaders have risked arrest and over 200 of them have been arrested doing these actions in order to call for people to be released from detention. Um, We've done other sort of actions. This is us in Parliament House in Canberra. On June 17, June 17 was World Refugee Day and June 17, 2015 was 10 years to the day that John Howard had had, uh, publicly announced that they were releasing all children from detention under the original Pacific Solution. And so we went in and we formed this group in the foyer. If you've ever been to Parliament House, you know, you know, you know the place. And we um, sang a song uh, and, and then we sat down and we remained silent. And we were, we were, we were removed, um, but that's sort of what we did. We've done heaps of other stuff. This was, um, we held 56 actions in one week in 2016. 
Um, there's me with Evie, for those who know her, when she's much younger. And um, that's at the office of Malcolm Turnbull, who was the Prime Minister back then. Uh, anyway, this long story short, we've held heaps of actions. And what we were trying to do was to publicly witness as Christians to the injustice of what people are doing. Uh, what, what our country was doing, I should say. And to call for a better response. To call for our government to do better. It's had a pretty good effect. Like, people are still in detention, but at the moment we've got a few hundred in detention, including adults, um, down from the few thousand when we started. And um, when we started, majority opinion in Australia was um, for the policies. that that Most people thought they were good policies, what we were doing to refugees. But um, this is back in 2016, so this is like, you know, a while ago. But... In a couple of years, we'd basically, us and the whole refugee movement had managed to shift opinion such that most Australians wanted to see Nauru and Manus Island detention centres closed down. Now, why do I tell you this story? Okay, that's a good question. Um, I tell you this story because it's my story. I'm telling you about me, I guess. Um, But I'm telling you a bit about where following Jesus has led me and where I think that following Jesus will lead all of us. Not necessarily to do this exact, this kind of thing, uh, this, like this action. But Jesus is calling us to follow radically. In Matthew 16, Jesus calls us to take up our cross. That is, to follow him on the way, even to the cross, even to death. Now, most of us probably won't die for our faith, but are we prepared to do so? Are we prepared to follow Jesus wherever he leads us? Uh, I'm going to skip all this. I was going to talk about our farm. Uh, we live here now. Uh, we started an eco farm, or we're starting an eco farm. It's taken a while. And um, we're trying to live sustainably and stuff because we love Jesus. So anyway, that's that. Uh, that's the house we built. That's our piggy. Uh, that's a big piggy. Yeah, that's a was. That's an is. He, he's, he's good. Um, that's some of the piggy. So, <laughs> um, and those are chickens. They lay eggs. They don't get eaten. So, um, but, so, um, I tell this story in order to say that Jesus, a lot of testimonies um, are like, oh, yeah, my life used to be so messed up and then Jesus came and made me, like, better. Um, or like unmessed up my life, like made my life. And I'm like, man, my life is the opposite. Like my life was like, it's sort of messed up in a one way and then Jesus just messed it up in another way. So um, in a totally good way because actually we need our lives to be messed up. Like life as normal is just the worst. Um, living a normal life doesn't, what does it mean? We live in a society where rates of mental health issues are going up because we strive for what's normal. And what's normal is oppressive. What's normal harms us. And we need as a church and as young people and as Christians, whatever, we need to do something different. We need to represent some kind of alternative. And that alternative is following Jesus. And I'm not talking about just having a personal faith. I'm talking about following Jesus into love and justice and peacemaking and beauty 
and grace and truth in the world. And what that looks like for each of us will be different. We're not, but as a community, we build each other up to do those things, to, send, to be sent out in order to witness to Jesus in this world. This is the stuff I've done. I'll continue to do stuff like this. So what does it mean for you to follow Jesus? Um, nowadays, I started a new job sort of seven months ago working at the Baptist College in Sydney and I run a program called Plunge. And Plunge uh, is a one-year program. It's for sc- people who have just finished school or mainly for them. Uh, and we take you for a year. And our, our job is to immerse you in radical faith. You do a diploma in theology and you... Um, we take you overseas to Cambodia, actually, for two weeks. I'm going this year. Uh, I'm going in about six weeks, taking our crew over. Um, and we go all around Sydney and we visit all sorts of stuff from um, homeless ministries to... We went to Lakemba Mosque. I took our, our students there. We visited a synagogue. Uh, we've gone to, like, aged care. We've gone to mental health um, places. We've gone to... Uh, places for disability, uh, we've, we've done bush care, uh, like bush regeneration, we do all sorts of stuff that you might not normally do in your life in order to ask you the question, where is Jesus in this and is Jesus calling you to do something like this? Uh, I say that because A, I'm, I'm, I've sought to try to follow Jesus radically in my life and my job now is I get to teach other people to do that which is great. But the other reason I say it is because if you are leaving school or you're under the age of 23, or because we take up to 23-year-olds, or you'll leave school in a couple of years, uh, think about doing our program. Spend a year focused on just seeking to follow Jesus closer. Spend a year working out what does discipleship mean for you. Anyway, that's pretty well it. Uh, I am going to ask if there's any questions about anything that I've said, if that seems like a good way to finish. No, great. Oh, yeah, okay. Uh, The multiple times I've been arrested, I've never even been detained. Um, so I've always been released uh, on the premise. Uh, like uh, they t- I've always been removed and released. We've had people who have been detained, sometimes for long periods of time, um, and some of our folks have gone to court. Uh, it just depends on the situation and what the police decide to do that day because all the police local area commands are different and they have a different tolerance for things. So... <laughs> Say that again, sorry. Oh no, we are breaking the law. We're intent- so we're engaging in intentional civil disobedience. Um, so we're quite influenced by Martin Luther King Jr., those kinds of people, um, who intentionally have break- broken the law in order to call for fidelity to a higher law. That's the logic. So we have those actions, for example, we've been trespassing. We know that we've been doing that and we accept the consequence of doing that. Um, 
So they, they can arrest us, that's the, that's the law of the land and we're happy to accept that. So, um, But that, yeah, I don't think it's, I mean, maybe it is to placate, placate the media or something, but most of the media has been really positive. We've had 5% negative media, 95% positive. Um, magistrates have been incredibly positive about us. I, I, I've, I, in one of my other presentations, I have a quote on a meme where a magistrate in Adelaide basically said, you're a credit to your faith and um, I, have no, uh, I have no qualms about letting you go. Uh, so things like that have been said. I've had coppers literally um, tell me that if they weren't in uniform, they would want to be with us. So Martin Luther, this is a bit off topic. Martin Luther King talked about this idea of uh, double victory. He said, you don't just want to win the issue, right? You want to win over your, your enemy or your opponent. That's, that's the double victory, right? And so that's what we've sought to do. We've always sought to have, uh, be as um, integrous as we can in what we do so that police go, yeah, we arrested that mob, but gee, they were the nicest people in lockup we've ever had. <laughs> Which was a quote from... Uh, a copper at the first action. So, yeah. No, no, please. I don't know how late we can go, but I don't care. I've got no family at home, so. That's a good question. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so, we, our first action at Scott Morrison's office was the 21st of March, 2014. We spent 12 months planning that. It took us 12 months to work it out. Um, people thought, oh, they just decided one day to walk in and pray. Actually, we took 12 months of discerning and praying and planning. And um, a lot of Christians have that reaction and say, oh, you're breaking the law, it's wrong. Um, and I go, okay, I understand that, that's fine. Uh, I don't have a problem with people who make that um, decision. I don't feel that way um, because, again, going back to Martin Luther King, he talked about that, um, that they have the highest respect for law because they don't seek to escape the consequences of what they've done. So we're not, uh, we break the law and then go and we'll cop whatever we cop as a result of doing that. That's, that's just, you know. We had a group in Perth who were strip searched. That was not just. Um, that, I mean, that's a, yeah, that's a different <laughs> case. But um, I am convinced that we can appeal to a higher law, we can take seriously the law and break it in a conscientious way because we're not seeking to harm people. I mean, trespassing on what is essentially Commonwealth, uh, it's complicated, but Commonwealth property in a way, um, does no harm to anyone, so that's important to us. And uh, again, we're calling for something, we're calling a government who has broken the law, broken into many international laws in doing what they've done to account. And this is the clearest way that at the time we found to do that. Yeah. No, Morris, that, that it's, it's, it makes, uh, it's not surprising to me at all that politicians don't want to comment on us. Because as soon as they comment on us, they draw attention to us. However, the media has drawn plenty of attention to us. So the fact is, we... This is getting into messaging, like strategy now. It's a bit boring. But um, 
where even though we're doing these actions, when the, the primary audience is not even the politician. We are calling them to do the right thing, but we're quite aware that they won't, or they're very unlikely to. We're speaking... We, we, our aim in that first action was to speak to you, to the church, to say, we need to do something better than what we've done. And the more people who get involved in these kinds of things, the more people who speak up, the more people who share stories about us and say, hey, these guys did the right thing, the more public opinion changes. And that's what we've been seeing. That's our aim. That's what we've been doing. So, it depends. Uh, it, um, no, it's not that many. Um, in, in terms of a police officer telling me that I'm actually under arrest twice, in terms of actually being removed from things, a few more. Yeah, <laughs> I've never. No, you can, but I've never received one. No, no. Oh, sorry. Uh, how old I was? Uh, I was twenty-nine. Yeah, that's right. This is the th- like when I talk about radical faith. Let me put it this way: Jesus was executed as a criminal of the state, right? Do you know why people were crucified in the first century? They weren't crucified because they went around telling everyone to love one another. They were crucified because they were seen as rebels. Now, was Jesus a violent rebel? No. He, he explicitly repudiated violence. He said, no, violence. Because, you know, Peter does the sword thing to the ear and he goes, what are you doing? That's not how we roll in the kingdom. My translation. And um, that's not how Jesus does it. But he is a threat to, the, current, to, the, or, to the, the order of the state. They are scared of him. And that's why he's crucified. So, Yep. <laughs> It's getting late and I've talked for way too long. So, um, thanks for having me. And, uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I probably should have said that. Uh, so, when we did that first action at Scott Morrison's office, 10 minutes before we went in, we went, oh, okay, so it's called Love Makes a Way. That's the name of our movement organisation thing. And people think, oh, how'd you come up with that name? And I tell them the story, I go, um, we're about to walk into Scott Morrison's office and somebody goes, hey, what's our hashtag? And we went, and we went. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. We didn't have a name. We didn't think we would be a thing. And we were like, oh, okay, hashtag. Um, and one guy, he was a Hillsong guy, and he had on his shirt. He was he he'd skipped out on colour conference. He was supposed to be serving because he was a college student, and he came and did our thing. And he had the colour shirt on, and it said, "Love, uh, love is on the way." And and he went, "Oh, love is on the way is pretty cool." And one of our people said, "Oh, yeah, like what about like love makes the way?" You can tell a lot about my brain in my response to that. I went, yeah, that's really good. Except if we make it love makes a way, we cut out two characters on Twitter. And um, so, and that was, that was how it came about. So love makes a way. Because love does make a way. Not like um, sappy love. Not um, love actually love. Uh, I hate that movie. And um, <laughs> like I, I've, I've preached a sermon in which I addressed that movie. Uh, so... I, I'm ready to debate it, and um, but but uh, fierce radical love that seeks to treat the other 
in a way that we want to be treated, but that also calls the best out of them. When Jesus tells the rich young man that he has to sell everything he owns, Mark says he looked at him and he loved him. And then he tells him, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. That's love. We treat people better than we want to be treated, but we tell them the truth in love. Amen.